0: Well, as usual, you know, you are sitting there in the emergency department uh, and you're reflecting back on a case you saw about a week ago of uh, an individual with syncope, and you're saying, you know, just how long should I be looking at the monitor and looking for arrhythmias when the patient's in the emergency department? And you don't think about it very long because, you know, you admitted that patient, Uh, but you're reminded of it. All of a sudden, when a patient arrives uh, in cardiac arrest, and lo and behold, that patient that you admitted for syncope a week ago is now in the resus bay uh, awaiting your uh, expertise, thoughts are going through your mind, like, should I bag the patient if they're hypoxic uh, when I'm intubating them? And once I get ROSC, should I activate the cath lab? I always cringe because they give me a hard time in post-cardiac arrest. Uh, Cardiac uh, cath activations. So, once again, the answer to these and many other questions will be found in the upcoming EM Toxcast. So, welcome to Emergency Medicine uh, Journal Club for April 2019 and EM Talkscast. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by Ernie Lieber, our program director, and Ed Mosca, our former program director. Uh, and we're going to look at some three very interesting articles following the uh, somewhat uh, problematic vignette that you heard. We always, you always hate to get that phone call, like, remember that guy you saw you last night? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But uh, we only throw that out there for uh, to sort of knit the podcast together. So, our first article is going to be Duration of Electrocardiographic Monitoring of ED Patients with Syncope. Ed, you're going to talk about this. I, uh, I, I, uh, when I first saw this article, I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a grind to get through it. But then as I reflected on it, I thought, this is really, really fascinating stuff. So why it don't you is. tell us more about it? And I want you to know I did have to do some
2: prep for this article because... I always like to mention the author's name. Okay. And I don't know if you've noticed the first author's name, but I hope I get this right and don't destroy it, but it's Dr. Thirugana Sambandamorthy.
0: Thirugana Sambandamorthy, yes. Right. That was excellent. That first was... name Venkatesh.
2: You're so... I hope I got that right. I I, think you got it right. And I didn't destroy it too badly from the Ottawa Hospital Research Center. And this is a really recent article. just came out in circulation in March of uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. So as you say, um, syncope has evolved, I know, since I was a resident. Um, When I was a resident, virtually every syncope got admitted, unless you were really young and it was obviously vasovagal. And then over the course of time, we've had... San Francisco syncope rules, which mm-hmm. never panned out. and Different people have had different mm-hmm. guidelines and things. And so um, this gentleman here has apparently been working on syncope for a while up in Canada and came up with something called the Canadian Syncope Risk Score. And this is actually a, um, a pre-specified sub-analysis of the original study they did looking at that. To, they wanted to figure out the time to the occurrence of serious arrhythmias based on their risk score, and to provide us some guidance uh, about the duration and location of cardiac monitoring. So this was done in adults um, greater than 16 years old who had syncope within the last 24 hours in six large Canadian EDs. They excluded people who had either major trauma or they couldn't get an accurate history, so it really is within all comers. And its I, I think it, you're right, it's a really good study that hopefully gives us some guidance.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, the patients they had look like, I think a lot like our patients. Uh, if you look at table one, the baseline characteristics. Um, the mean age was like 53 years old. Mm-hmm. They were about half and half males and females. Almost two thirds of them arrived by ambulance. So these are really sick people. you know. About a third of them or so had hypertension. About a fifth of them had various cardiac issues. 10% had diabetes. And a lot of them got a big workup. I mean, 95% of them got EKGs. 85% got labs. And about 12% of them or so was ad- were admitted. So it really does seem like a good syncope population, something that we could generalize to well, our practice. Right. So they wound up screening almost 15,000 people, and about half of them were potentially eligible. Um, they wound up including, like, eh, just about 5,700 in their, in their final thing, in, in their final cohort. 12% of them had a serious underlying condition, and that sort of, I think, um, comports with my experience. I mean, you see a lot of people with syncope, and there's a small percentage that have something bad, and the rest of them, you're like, ah, what do I do with them? So um, they, you know, they divided these people up into the, uh, with the um, Canadian syncope risk score, and interestingly, they found that the risks actually did go along with their risk scores. Okay. So if you had a low-risk patient, which was about three-quarters of their patients, only 15 of them out of 4,100, over 4,100 had an arrhythmic outcome, so that was 0.4%. If you had a medium Canadian risk score, they had about 1,000 of those people, only 92 of them, so that was like 8.7% had an arrhythmic outcome, and they had almost 400 people who had high risk scores, and 100 of them, or a quarter of them, had an arrhythmic outcome, and those differences obviously were statistically significant. So it looks like the Canadian syncope risk score really is a good judge of what's going to happen to these people. Okay. Whether they're going to have any rhythmic outcome or not. So the next question is, okay, we can risk stratify them. Right. How long do we have to watch them now in yes, the ER? Do right. they have to be admitted? Can I watch them for an hour or so? So if you look at figure three, um, there's a couple of kaplan meyer curves.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, they they looked at it. They did some um, analysis of those. And massaging. They, massaging of the curves, <laughs> as it were, and um, found the low-risk patients, the optimal cut point for monitoring was about two hours or so, and that identified about half the arrhythmic um, outcomes or so. So if you're looking at a low-risk patient, you observe them for two hours, you know, the residual risk is down to, like, 0.2%, which I think most of us would feel like you have a 0.2% chance of something, you're probably sure. okay to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the medium and high-risk patients, they found that if you observe them for six hours, that was the optimum point for monitoring them. And again, you know, about that identified about half the arrhythmic outcomes, and so the residual risk there was, like, 4.4%. And those then now you can make a decision, like, you know, if they're medium risk, maybe they can go home. And if you, maybe if they're high risk, I will admit them. And, you know, how long to admit them for? I mean, most of their arrhythmia showed up within the first 15 days. That helps, I think, the cardiologists and the primary care physicians for. How long do I put these people on the halter monitor? Do I keep them on the halter monitor for a whole month or right. something like that? You can do things. So I think, at least for us, it's a really useful study because it gives us some guidance about how long to watch these people for. Now, as in any study, there are some problems. I mean, you know, um, they about a fifth of their potentially eligible patients were not enrolled because of various reasons. And, you know, not everybody had an EKG or a lab, but let's face it, there's probably people that we all do that with who mm-hmm. have obvious causes for fainting and things like that. They lost about 6% uh, for follow-up. But otherwise, I mean, I think it's a pretty good study. Um, urban Canadian hospitals, I, you know, I don't know how much that uh, is the same as Center City, Philadelphia or West Philadelphia, but as I said in the beginning, I mean, the baseline characteristics, these were some sick people that yeah. have diseases just like ours. So mm-hmm. I think this is a really good study that um, can sort, certainly inform our practice of what we're going to do with these syncope patients.
0: Yeah, I found it very fascinating because um, there was a there was a time where, um, you know, you would have to go, when a patient had syncope and you'd be watching them in the emergency department, you would go to the telemetry monitor and go through stacks and stacks of printout (laughs) to see if they had maybe a couple episodes of VTAC or something. Um, Now, of course, you can just go, it's all banked, and you go and, um, you know, look at it and sort of like do the rewind, and they'll actually alert you uh, to when a patient is having arrhythmias. What's fascinating to me is that a lot of residents and nurses don't do that now. Like you have a syncope patient, and uh, we feel like the 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 two minutes that we're in the room examining them, if nothing is visible on the monitor, we're like, well, I didn't see anything that would cause that arrhythmia. So for me, this I think should inform uh, our practice in the sense that um, for sure, the few minutes that you're looking at the monitor or the however many seconds the EKG is, is not sufficient, even in a low risk patient. You know, somebody you should be looking have have some kind of a way of observing the the uh, trace uh, on a telemetry way at least for a couple hours and, as they say, for moderate to high-risk patients, even longer. So now, having said, if you do that, yeah, wow, it's, it seems exceedingly safe to um, have a, a low-risk syncope patient only be in the ED for a couple hours make sure that nothing untoward was going on on the trace uh, and... I think this is, provides you good data uh, for that practice.
1: Yeah, I feel the same. I, th- I think, you know, one, make sure that your syncy- syncope patients are on the monitor. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> you, know, you come in for syncope, you go in there, there's no monitor. Or maybe they were put on and the patient pulled out because they had to go to the bathroom yes, and no one right. ever puts them back on. Right. So, you know, make sure they're on the monitor, first of all. And then uh, you know, maybe before discharge, if you have know, a patient wanna discharge, yeah, go back and look at that monitor strip. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, the, the the at least the telemetry monitor you can go back for a couple hours right. and mm-hmm. make sure there was nothing abnormal. See if there's there. any events. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And I, I really like that though in that low risk group there were zero deaths. There were no ventricular arrhythmias uh, uh, detected. So -hmm. that makes you feel pretty good about, you know, uh, discharging these, you know, at least these real low-risk patients. Mm -hmm.
2: I think we're finally getting a
0: good algorithm for syncope, because syncope has been so wishy-washy for so long about, We did not have a lot of confidence uh, discharging patients with syncope uh, many years ago. You're 100% right, because of this, the fear that there was a malignant etiology to it. Um, And uh, I think we're... I think... That practice certainly has uh, greatly, greatly changed. Um, I would say now it's um, when I admit a patient with syncope, I have a pretty solid idea of what I'm concerned about, not the what we used to do is like, mom, you syncopized. I not. You could have had a VTAC. How do I know? Or like, Well, now we have these, these, yeah. these risk levels that we have a very good sense of. Who's having VTAC and who's not? (laughs) No, it's
2: nice to have a a, a risk stratification tool like this. Yeah, and I think it also helps us as teachers when you're talking to the residents because syncope can be such a complex subject. It seems like such a simple thing, but it's really not. And it gives the residents some structure about how to evaluate these patients and what they need to look for and. What history they need to get and things like that
0: yeah, the resident the trainees get frustrated when um, they try the, they evaluate a patient they present the case to you and then you reevaluate the patient and then you come up with a, let's say a um uh, a more experienced approach, uh, but they can't quantify, you can't quantify for them why it is that you are concerned. So it helps you when you teach as well yeah. to say like, all right, like here's a risk stratification. My gestalt of this patient was that they needed an admission. Uh, here's where the gestalt uh, derives from the right. actual risk stratification. Right. Right. And I encourage a lot of residents to, you know, use MD Calc or something to get these score systems because I was just going to say that I, I
2: haven't looked I probably should have but I hope this is on MD Calc it is oh, oh is look- it on I, MD I pulled it
1: up look- last night just okay. last night I okay. had to think, be patient <laughs> I ended up admitting but yeah I had the resident over we went went th- <laughs> pulled up MD Calc ran through the score and it was you know kind of between moderate to high there you go got admitted. And uh, the resident had, had did have a funny comment. He said, why are all these rules Canadian? <laughs> I said, oh, they just have a, a big group that likes to make rules. I don't
0: know. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the... I think it all started with Ian Steele yeah. and his group. They have, still, have they access to bigger databases. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the, the thing. System. And so and their health system is very focused on uh, the efficient delivery of health care. Um, and
2: they have a relatively closed population. They have universal health care, and everybody gets... Right. Everybody's in the system. So. right. They don't lose people.
0: Yeah, they can do things like, you know, all the asthma studies that showed that if you don't refill your inhaled steroid, you're likely to have a horrible exacerbation was because they have complete access to pharmacy databases, you know. Yeah. So.
2: so, yes, really good um, clinical risk score here. These, the residents should uh, feel free to look this up on MD Calc. And yeah. Come to us and say, I got a low risk syncope here. I'm just going to watch them and then... If everything's okay after two hours, they're out of here. It's like, okay, that would be good, and then maybe it wouldn't lead to the issue we're going to have with our next patient. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, uh, so that patient that, that that you admitted two weeks ago that you felt like oh there was high risk syncope. Turns out it was pretty high risk, <laughs> and uh, you know the patient arrives and you have to decide that uh, you know how you're going to go about intubating the patient and. Um, there has been a lot of chatter about our next article, which is bag mask ventilation during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults. It came out in February. Um, a lot of, lot of talk about it, a lot of anticipation about it as well, because there had – I think there is an element of sort of uh, – Purism going on when it comes to rapid sequence intubation and not uh, ventilating a patient because of risk of gastric contents being aspirated. But anyway, the study was 401 patients enrolled, um, and they put the patients into two groups: a bag mask ventilation group uh, and a no ventilation group uh, as part of uh, their, uh, uh, evalu- their uh, trial. And the idea was that in between induction and intubation, uh, one group would get bag-, bag mask ventilation, and one group would not. Uh, and uh, they really focused on the, uh, their primary outcomes, which were uh, hypoxia, uh, mild hypoxia, and severe hypoxia, and then evidence of um, evidence of aspiration uh, uh, such as a witnessed aspiration on the intubation. Uh, or opacity on a chest uh, x-ray 48 hours after tracheal intubation. So the the results are very interesting. Uh, 21 patients, uh, about 11% in the bag mask ventilation group, had severe hypoxemia, uh, but twice as many in the no ventilation group uh, had uh, severe hypoxemia. Uh, There was operator-reported aspiration in 2.5% of the bag mask ventilation group, and 4% in the no ventilation group, and roughly speaking, um, an equal number uh, and percentage of patients who had a new opacity on chest radiograph in the 48 hours after tracheal intubation, um, 16% and 14.8%. So the, the authors concluded that among critically ill adults undergoing tracheal intubations, patients receiving bagged mass ventilation had higher oxygen saturations and a lower incidence of severe hypoxemia, than those receiving no ventilation. The general response to the article and group and folks that I've spoke with was a sort of a duh. Uh, (laughs) And um, really, I think there's some really interesting issues raised by this article. First of all, I don't know anybody who says, well, I'm doing a rapid sequence intubation. I will never ventilate the patient, you know? Uh, I think... Uh, we all have that sense that uh, some patients just need to have be bag mask uh, uh, valve mask Absolutely. ventilated, you know. So this doesn't really represent anything that I would describe as a true practice in emergency <clears throat> medicine. The other thing is that, in my experience, a patient that deoxygenate or, 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 or you know becomes hypoxic during uh, right after induction and prior to intubation. Has probably been poorly pre-oxygenated, you know, like really poorly pre-oxygenated, and they went out of their way to um, uh, eliminate patients that uh, did not have things uh, who needed like a crash intubation or what have you. It was done in the unit, not in the ED, so there was um, there was a little bit more of a. So it's more applicable in the ICU. I think we can uh, we can extrapolate to the ED, but if if we're you're going to eliminate crashing patients. Obviously, you know, those patients uh, uh, often need to be bagged, uh, mass yeah. ventilated. Um, so, um, you know, the groups were about the same, uh, in terms of their illness, uh, about half of them, you know, about 60 years old, half their sepsis or septic shocks, uh, a little more than half had hypoxemic uh, respiratory failure. Um, the, uh, interesting thing to me is that the groups were not the same in sort of their pre-oxygenation approach. So in the no bag, vas- bag valve math, the BVM, in the no BVM group, I'll say, um, about half of them received what I would think of as inadequate pre There was no pre low flow nasal cannula, or just a non-rebreather, which to me is, is not an approach that we teach or, or use here. So the strengths, I think it's a well-designed study. It was randomized. Nobody had any serious conflicts. Um, there were acceptable exclusions, except for the fact that they don't deal with crashing patients. Um, there was not a lot of protocol noncompliance. There was not a lot of missing data. Um, the limitations are it was not an ED study, but I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, the primary outcome, just the lowest O2 set, is not, was not nearly as important as the severe secondary outcome, which was severe hypoxemia. And, you know, a pulse ox of 90 is different than 85, and that's way different than, you know, uh, 78 or 75. Um, patients requiring media intubation were not included because they couldn't be randomized quick enough, is another limitation. Um, Uh, if you're, I think there had to be some bias because if you're in a, in a study called the prevent study, (laughs) you're, you're, you're probably going like, Oh, I wonder if we're preventing hypoxemia. Um, so they really couldn't, um, blind it. There were a little bit of differences in groups on some things, more pneumonia in the, uh, no BMV group, uh, more hypercarbia in the no BMV group. Uh, less GI bleeding in the uh, in the no BMV group. Um, so, so now I get on my soapbox. Uh, and my soapbox is is that I don't. I, th- I I'm glad that this has chased away the folks who don't like to bag, mask, ventilate patients uh, because there uh, that seems to be an issue. But there's no doubt in my mind that you know, pre-oxygenation is is the key to all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just to reiterate our approach, uh, which is based on the report of um, uh, Scott Weingart did with uh, Rich Levitan, you know, nasal cannula, super high flow, uh, a non-rebreather mask, also high flow, or what I like is a nasal cannula, super high flow, and a bag valve mask on the patient's face with a good seal and a peep valve set to 10 or 15 And then once you recruit, when when patients get hypoxic during induction, it's because they have shunting because you haven't recruited open airways. And that is pressure, not oxygen. You need positive pressure to do that. So that, I think, um, I can't remember the time. I can't remember a recent time where I had a patient seriously desaturate um, during an intubation that I had any time to do pre-oxygenation on. It was anybody that I've had desaturated somebody who was a crash airway um, for a lot of different reasons. So, um,
2: yeah, I think that's the that that's if there's a flaw with this study, it's that there's not that many crash intubations. I mean, because let's face it, I think more of our intubations in the ER are the person who comes in and they just had a hamburger and they just got short of breath for whatever reason, mm-hmm. too many too much salt on the French fries or whatever, <laughs> and you know, and and so bagging them may lead to more aspiration and vomiting and aspiration, whereas you got to figure these are a bunch of people who are a little bit older. They're in sepsis, so they probably haven't eaten in a couple days. They're probably NPO. If somebody's going to pick something to be contrarian about with this study, that's where it's going to be. It's going to be like, I agree with you. I think a lot of these patients are comparable to ours, but there's yeah. a good subset of our patients who just come in, who just ate a hamburger. Right. We've all seen those, and you're clogging up how many yank hours <laughs> trying to clear yeah. things
1: out. I mean. Yeah, so for the, those patients, this study is not directly applicable. You know, the, the <clears throat> ones we see frequently intubate patients who uh, would be considered high risk for aspiration. Um, so you can't really apply that here. But still, you know, when they're crash airways, you you, you know, you often find yourself, you know, give them a little bag valve mask. Yeah, in. you got to. to. Um, you have yeah. to. Yeah, have yeah. To. yeah, yeah it's yeah. a risk-benefit analysis. Yeah. Oh, it definitely is. Yeah. But, yeah, those patients where you have a little bit of time to optimize them before intubation, you know, whether it be, you know, give them a little blood pressure support and the pre-oxygenation, then, you know, uh, those patients, you know, you probably... Uh, um, would be okay with a little bag valve mask too.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it would be fun. They they reference a number to sort of create the notion that there is a controversy. Uh, they reference some of the original articles on rapid sequence intubation. So I pulled one of my favorite ones, which is from the Pittsburgh group, uh, Peter Safar and William Stept, and this goes back to 1970. I'm just
2: going to ask you that that goes back to Safar is uh, right. yeah, back there.
0: So the first the first paper on rapid sequence intubation was in 1959, uh, and their approach recommended that the patient should be and you know this should sound familiar should be head up, should have preoxygenation with a non-rebreather mask of high flow at least 10 liters per minute. Give the then you give the thiopental and the sucks. You can you and I Ed or from the thiopental days, um, you should avoid positive pressure ventilation, but didn't say never, just avoid it if you can, and then you're supposed to intubate very quickly, the idea being that you would pre-oxygenate the patient well, as best you possibly could, and then move quickly to intubation, avoiding positive pressure ventilation, but not uh, saying never do positive pressure ventilation. So that's snow and done, 1959. Safar and stepped in 1970, uh, modified that, by adding the defasciculation dose, uh, mostly looking for um, that concept of avoiding the fasciculation that they believed was going to increase your chance of aspiration. Um, and they, they used uh, T-tubo curare for, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> for the defaciculating dose. The, that's 1970. They also said avoid excessive positive pressure ventilation. Use the bag valve mask to preoxygenate. Um, now, oddly enough, they said if the patient was unconscious, skip the thiopental, which I don't think we would, we would do now. But um, I think it's important to realize that this notion that rapid sequence intubation is a no-bag mask ventilation scenario is incorrect. It was, it's always been that it's a risk benefit. And um, you should never let the patient get hypoxic for want of a little risk of distending the stomach. Um, you know, the CELIC maneuver... Was, was put to get was like the late 60s. Uh, and that was supposed to be done to prevent uh, ventilating the stomach uh, during intubation, right. you know, and um, I think and, and that maneuver over the years has proven difficult for people to learn how to do mm-hmm. just like bag mask ventilating is difficult yeah. for people to learn how to do. I think it's
2: always useful to go back to the original studies like that because over time what happens is people just generalize the results, and it gets handed down from attending to resident who then becomes an attending and hands it down to there. and so it's like whisper down the lane when you go back and look at the original study, we're not quite, it doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah, like some of the things
0: we're looking at in trauma now, we're starting to say, why do we crash intubate these trauma patients? Um, you know, with just sucks and accommodate why aren't, why aren't we go, why aren't we doing what we know to do, which is give them a defaciculating dose and take that extra three minutes to preox and, and, you know, sure. Okay. If it's like, get the tube in so we can get to the OR, uh, great. But, uh, some of these things are done for, you know, just altered mental status and yeah. what have you. So,
1: yeah, some of these things that become dogma when you go back and look at why it doesn't really, uh. You know, uh, there's no real good reason behind it.
0: Yeah, so, so yeah, yeah. So um, so I, I think it's easy to just make the mistake of that a rapid sequence means never bag mass yeah. ventilate. And this paper, I think, hopefully un- undoes that thinking for people. Um, if the patient needs oxygen give them give right. it to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and try to avoid putting it in the stomach.
1: Yeah. Like you said the good good bag mask ventilation there's a technique to it. Like you said you're not going to force you know you know, squeeze that bag as hard and as fast as you can. You know they describe it Use an oral airway um, just enough uh, bag to get a little chest rise you know exactly you, it, right, you know so slow uh,
0: yeah. uh, low pressure but keep the peep valve going. Peep, exactly. Put the With peep valve peep. on because the positive pressure is the key, right? And so no peep valve and just squeezing it as hard and fast as you can, yeah. right. no yeah. bueno. Then so, you might be throwing up the
2: stuff. So a piece yeah. of advice to all those future interns out there who may or may not be listening, when you do your anesthesia rotation, yeah, the tube is sexy, and that's what everybody <laughs> wants to do, but uh, maybe once, ask them if you can try ventilating somebody right. and see how long you can actually do that.
0: Well, you will uh, really, truly impress the anesthetists uh, and our anesthesia attendings if you actually care to learn bag mask ventilation. And you'll impress every ED attending you you yeah. meet as well because everybody um, uh, we, – I I find very few of our residents have a hard time intubating. Uh, but even at the end in their third year, they're still uh, mastering the uh, yeah. art of bag mask it's ventilation. A, it's a
2: great skill to
1: have, and you will need it sometime. Gosh, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'll save yourself if you have a good good bag mask technique.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, all right, well, we got the tube in. Whew.
1: And we've <laughs> resuscitated the patient. And the patient's
0: resuscitated, and, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't look like uh, there is any aspiration risk, so uh, we're going to pat ourselves on our back. So, um, and we do an EKG, and there is no STEMI.
1: So what do we do, Ernie? (laughs) I don't know. They they were just arrested. They have to go to cath lab, don't they? Maybe not. That's that's this uh, this third paper here. Maybe not. Yeah, this is the coronary angiography after cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation, the COACT trial for short. Um, This is also pretty recent. New England Journal, March 2019. It's out of the Netherlands by Lemkes et al. A couple of the sponsors here. It was the Netherlands Heart Institute. Biotronic and AstraZeneca, so a couple of company sponsors also, but they do, you know, make the point that uh, they weren't involved in the research, the writing of the manuscript, or, or anything of that nature, the usual disclaimer. Um, so the question they were asking, um, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, due to a shockable rhythm in patients who get successfully resuscitated, is an immediate coronary angiography strategy better than a delayed strategy with respect to survival? Um, So uh, for some of the background, you know, we know mortality for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest due to VF and pulseless VT can be high, reported as high as 40%. A lot of times the cause of the arrest is unclear, but it it is postulated a lot of it may be due to ischemic heart disease. Some report up to 70% may be due to ischemic heart disease. Uh, We know that uh, post-ROSC patients who do have a STEMI should go to the cath lab. That's per U.S. and European guidelines. Mm-hmm. But what do you do when there is no STEMI? Right. Um, so this trial, this was a randomized, multi-center trial, 19 hospitals uh, that they were collecting data from. The providers, of course, were not blinded. You can't blind the cath lab attending, I guess, right? Uh, <laughs> the cath doesn't go well, yeah, he's blind. No, if it's blind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, It'll be Bird box style, right? Uh, so the inclusions, it was out of hospital cardiac arrest, an initial, initial shockable rhythm, and then unconsciousness after ROSC. Uh, you were excluded if you had a STEMI, if you were in shock, or if there was some other obvious non-cardiac cause. Uh, so as far as the, uh, the, the methods here, so they had 552 patients that were randomized over three years uh, with cardiac arrest without STEMI. They were randomized kind of in a one-to-one fashion. Uh, there was uh, the immediate PCI group usually had their intervention within about two hours, the delayed PCI group, it was about five days, 121 hours is what they report. The primary endpoint was a nice patient-centered endpoint. It was survival at 90 days. Uh, they looked at a bunch of secondary endpoints, uh, but the endpoint secondary endpoints that got the most attention uh, were the survival at 90 days with neurologic outcome that was good or mild to moderate disability. Um, which is uh, pretty nicely patient-centered too. Then uh, a couple of the other ones that got some attention was their time to targeted temperature management. Um, so those were sort of some of the things they looked at. And then as far as results, overall they came out with no difference between delayed PCI versus immediate PCI. So you had 176 patients out of the two out of 273 in the immediate group were alive at 90 days. 178 out of 265 in the delayed group were alive at 90 days. So that was 64.5% versus 67.2%. So pretty even, no statistical difference between those uh, two groups. Um, some of the, uh, the, in the secondary parts of it, you know, and some of the criticisms were that, you um, the rate of acute unstable lesions was pretty low, about 15% overall, right. and only about 5% of the patients, and this is both groups, had an acute thrombotic occlusion. Um, so, so you had a low rate of real disease that could benefit from, uh, from PCI. Uh, the other things uh, that people have been talking about are the targeted temperature management. In the delayed group, They got to uh, target temperature in about 4.7 hours. In the immediate PCI group, it was 5.4 hours. So going to cath, it takes you a little bit longer to get down to uh, to, uh, a temp Mm -hmm. um, to cool the patient. Uh, uh, So those were some of the interesting things. You know, the limitations here uh, were just what we mentioned. Um, There was a low number of patients that actually had good disease. Um, that could benefit from PCI. So to show a real difference in the groups, you would have to have kind of a a much larger uh, number Mm -hmm. of patients. Um, And then when you look at this endpoint of death, uh, even though this is a cardiac arrest, a lot of these patients die from neurologic issues. Um, You you say up to 60% of the patients in the trial that died were a result of neurologic injury. Mm. Um, So death isn't always from the uh, the cardiac cause. Um, As part of the article, then there was an editorial uh, by Abella and Gajewski. They're guys from UPenn down the the street Mm -hmm. here in Philadelphia, the Center for Resuscitation Management. And uh, they had a couple points um, that they they were going to make. And one is just about the patient selection. Uh, So they say when you have a high prevalence of significant coronary disease, uh, more patients are going to benefit from cath. So you, when you try to differentiate, you wanna take all comers or do you wanna be a little bit selective in, in your patients? If you're gonna take patients with some known CAD, um, you know, previous uh, stents or something like that, you're gonna have more benefit in those patients that go to cath. So maybe being a little bit more selective. And then the other point that we're making was just about the targeted temperature management. And uh, if you think that's a, uh, an important thing to get the temperature, to get these patients cooled, then a delayed strategy may be okay. Um, so, you know, do these patients need cath? So if you don't have, uh, they make money, I think if you don't have any other reason for this patient to have had a cardiac arrest, um, then a cath probably does need to be done. Uh, but maybe not, uh, not immediately, you know, if it's two or three in the morning, Mm. I don't think you have to fight with your cardiologist to come in when you don't have a STEMI on the EKG. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can get them cooled a little bit quicker, um, and then good post-resuscitation care is probably pretty critical. That was one of the things here is that thir- I think 38 patients crossed over from the no-cath to uh, cath uh, just because, you know, whether their troponins were be, uh, you know, starting to elevate or maybe they developed EKG changes. So uh, these patients need these you know, good post-resuscitation care. And, uh, and then maybe you'll di- identify some patients that, that do need um, catheterization. Um, so I think this was overall a, a good study and pretty good evidence that uh, that your cardiologists don't have to run into uh, the emergency department and their cath lab in the middle of the night. Um, there's a couple other trials going on too that uh, kind of asking these same questions. Um, I'll just mention this because I kind of, you know, I like these uh, acronyms yes, for names. Yes, you do. So there's one in Sweden, and uh, the name of that one is the Disco Trial. So the I Disco can't Trial. That, I can't wait for that. And can't wait for the music that goes along with it. And then in Minnesota, there's a big group there that does a lot of this. Uh, Um, uh, uh, cardiac arrest uh, care, and they're they're running an access trial, they're calling it. Um, So there's going to be more information coming out uh, within the next year or so, and um, hopefully maybe even answer this question uh, even a little bit uh, more.
2: Yeah, that would be good because I think we did one of these observational trials in a previous journal club, and then we were all, you know, and it, it seemed to show that if you didn't have a STEMI, you should go to the cath lab and I, I know myself, uh, yeah. calling up the cardiologist and saying hey, yeah, but did you see that article that came out that says, and, but it was only an observational trial, and right. so there's always some bias in those things. I think this mm-hmm. helps being a randomized trial, and then yeah. you're right, when those two new ones come out, that should hopefully give us a more definitive answer about, do we need to wake up the cardiologist at 2 in the morning and tell him get up, brush your teeth, <laughs> get in the car... It's time to come in.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a whole team that comes along with a STEMI activation yeah. that um, you do not want to rate waste that resource. One thing that I've been doing um, in, and been developed in a conversation with the cardiologists is that we'll get a post-ROSC echo uh, and that if mm-hmm. the echo shows wall motion abnormality, mm-hmm. then that becomes an immediate cath person. And if it does not, then that is a... Maybe no cath person. This study, everybody got cath, right. uh, and it was just immediate versus delayed. But in my mind, um, if you do, uh, if you can do a bedside ultrasound, for example, and you'll see uh, an isolated wall motion abnormality, not a global one, but an isolated one, uh, then that I will wake the. Um, if there's no STEMI, I will wake the uh, cardiologist up for that because I feel mm-hmm. like I, um, I'm spotting you something. You have a reason. I have a good reason, and the cardiologist. Um, like that approach, they feel like that's going to be probably somebody that they're going to find something that they'll do something about uh, on that calf. I think that's
2: probably the next step yeah. in this in this yeah. whole research, you know, of is risk stratifying people. I mean, we talk about risk stratifying syncope patients to start with. We need to somehow risk stratify yeah. these people who are at risk for having an occlusion,
1: and should go immediately to cath, and
2: who are not, and we can sit on for a little while
1: before we go. Yeah, it goes to the patient selection. So uh, if you don't have a STEMI, but you have regional wall motion abnormalities, then you probably have a much higher rate of having a lesion that could benefit from cath. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, some of the things we're seeing now on transesophageal echo uh, in the resuscitation, I think that's where, to me... um, there might be some pretty good value, you know, to throw the TEE in there and take a look at the heart during the uh, resuscitation, if ROSC is coming and going in particular, um, and see if you see a wall motion abnormality. That's just a theory. There's not nothing to prove that yet, but um, maybe the next uh, next paper we'll, uh, we'll dive into that.
2: All right. So I guess we... Uh- Save this patient after all.
0: I of course we yeah. every patient is saved in the EM tox uh, toxcast oh. studios, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, we're going to go to the root cause analysis as to why we discharged the patient <laughs> two <laughs> weeks <First> ago. Place. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you uh, for uh, some really great articles. And um, we want to send one final uh, word out to Aileen Gregosian, our uh, EM resident extraordinaire, who now I understand needs an agent.
2: Yes, yes. (laughs) I I, I was having lunch with Aileen and she's getting so many requests for interviews and podcasts and things that I think she needs an agent. So that's fantastic. We we have to, there must be somebody at Drexel's
0: school of, Oh, yeah, uh, either entrepreneurship it, or, or uh, uh, media, uh, arts, and design. Or media, arts, and design, or maybe the law school. The Westfall. All three. It, it, we'll it, all three. We'll need all
2: three. So we'll, help, we'll have to hook her up there. So, exactly, get some experts. I,
1: I told her she was becoming a star, and that's one of the things I said. I knew you when, you
0: know, <laughs> just before all this. Right,
1: right. On. She can be a star for other reasons uh, also, you know.
0: Oh, yes, one of our most awesome residents, for sure. All right, so looking forward to our Journal Club in a couple of days, and thank you. Thank you for listening. All right. Bye now. Bye. Bye.